This is episode 555 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Here is a question we should ask ourselves each time we trek off to our worship service on Sunday mornings. And the question is this, what is church, or what is church supposed to look like? Is church a building, or is it something more? Is it something we do, or something we become? And if church is something we do, how do we do it? How do we do church? But if church is something we become, then how do we become the church, and what takes place in us to help us become his church? You see the problems with simple words and changing definitions? From a doctrinal standpoint, the church is defined as the community of all true believers for all time. So the term church is used to apply to all those people whom Christ died to redeem and all those who were saved by the death of Christ, past, present, and future. In other words, it's all about people. But note, there's no mention of a building, a denomination, or a tax-exempt entity. And if not, then why the disconnect between what we define as church today and what we see played out in the book of Acts? I mean, who dropped the ball or who changed the rules in the middle of the game? I think you'll be shocked when you find the answers to these questions. So join us today as we discover church Acts style, and at the same time, learn how to leave the lukewarmness of Laodicea behind. Last week, we talked a little bit about worship, and if you remember what I shared with you, was this is what worship looked like in the Old Testament, and this is what worship looked like in the New Testament. I looked at some systematic theology books. I shared with you um, some biblical doctrinal teaching on worship. We listed all the things that worship entails biblically. And I asked you in that sermon last week, which one of these did you prepare or plan to do when we came together corporately? And the answer was probably none of them. Because they're all uncomfortable. You know, singing, well, I don't like the way, I don't like the songs, I don't like the way we sing. I feel uncomfortable singing or weeping or laughing or praising or, or preaching or testifying and stuff of that nature. Pretty much my whole life and probably your whole life, and as far as I remember for generations past, church is a service service, that we come to church for some some liturgical kind of religious ceremony where there are a few people up front that are performing the religious stuff, and the rest of us are not participants. We're pretty much observers. We just sit and watch and listen. When you want to volunteer in church, I'd like to really get involved. Then you get a ministry like greeting at the door, or a ministry, typical Baptist church, of uh, taking up a collection, or passing out the elements for the Lord's Supper, or handing out bulletins, and for the serve us. We've all known that. I mean, it's, it's almost in every religious persuasion, from the Catholics to the Orthodox to the Baptists, to the Pentecostals, to the, 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 the whatever it is, it's always the same. But when you look biblically, you find the church isn't exactly like that. It's a, it's a living organism that Christ actually invented and laid out for us the way it functions, the way it operates, what our responsibilities are to it, what its responsibilities are to us. And again, I'm making church sound like an entity. You're going to find out in a minute that it's not you or the church 
how the Holy Spirit inhabits us and controls that. And as I go through this as an introduction, just an introduction, as I go through this, you're going to find that we all know this stuff cognitively. We all agree with this, like the doctrine of the priesthood of the believers. We understand that, but we very seldom, at least in my experience and even my own life, we very seldom actually plan it out and live it out the way that we know. It's almost like it's, it's like being bipolar. It's, you know, I'm, I know this, but I'm going to live this way. Yet when you ask me about the way I live, I default back to what I know, although my life doesn't line up with that. And hence, we end up pretty much where we are. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at church. We're going to look at a couple definitions of church. We're going to see how church and worship kind of intersect together. And again, we're just going to, we're just going to kind of do a flyover of this topic. And then we're going to begin the process of comparing what the Bible says about church, what God says about church, with what we've all experienced most of our life in church and see, is one lacking? You know, is God's standards too high? Are our standards just comfortable enough? Is there a, is there a, a break there or are they melded together like this? And to find out if we need to change or if God's word is no longer applicable and it's obsolete. And as, you go, as we go through this process in just this one area of church we're going to look at today, I found the differences between what we're doing right now what they're doing all over America and all over the world in almost, I don't know, the vast majority of uh, congregations. The same thing we're doing right now, they're doing everywhere and have for centuries. And I think you're going to find when we look at the biblical model versus what we're doing, um, the results are startling. I mean, I was, I was shocked myself when I began to see just in this one area we're going to look at how far, and I won't say how far we've fallen, but how much I've never been trained. I've never been taught. Nobody ever showed me it was ever supposed to be different. And, uh, and I've been involved in church pretty much my whole life. Let's begin with some basics. What is church? Uh, this, of course, is from uh, Wade and Gruden's Systematic Theology. You can look at any other systematic theology that you want. There's almost 100% agreement that the definition of church is something similar to this. The church is a community of all true believers for all time. If you want to divide that up theologically, you have a local church, you have a universal church. The church is a community. It's a fellowship. It's a koinonia that it talks about of all time. In essence, the word church is used to apply to people. Oh, yeah, I know that. I know churches in a building or an organization or a 5013C or anything of that nature. I know it's not a denomination. I know that up here, but then nevertheless, I still view a building as church, a, a, a group of people as church, something with a name on it as church. It's not that way at all. Church is not what we do. Church is what we are. It's when the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. We are now sanctified. We are now a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Using Old Testament terminology, that would make us a tabernacle or a sanctuary. New Testament term terminology, the church is an assembly of people who have the Holy Spirit living within them. We come together as a corporate meeting, and what we're doing is it's like all the churches have come together to meet in this building not, hey, we're all going to get together and go to church. 
You understand the difference? We all know that. I got that. I knew that in Sunday school. That's really no big deal. If you take it a little step deeper and you look at the Greek word that is translated church, it's ekklesia, and that word means a called out people, an assembly of those called by Christ into the fellowship of his salvation or a gathering or assembly of the redeemed. Biblically speaking, when the church met, or it talks about this letter to the church at Ephesus, it's not talking about some building in Ephesus with a steeple and a sign out front. It's talking about a letter to all the people who are called by Christ, who the Holy Spirit lives in them, that make up his church. It has nothing to do with what we have determined church is all about. It has nothing to do with tax-exempt status. It has nothing to do with a building, or real estate, or or we're going to build a church here. No, you're going to build a building here. And you're going to put a sign out front, and you're going to call it a church, but it's really just a building that you're inviting churches to come to, uh, called out, devoted followers of Christ to come to, to corporately worship. And if they do, what does that look like? I mean, does it have to be on every street corner? Does it have to have a different flair? Does it have to have a name, a special name, like a you know, impact church or, you know, church without walls or something of that nature? Can it just be a building? Does it have to have a steeple? Can it just be in a barn or, or a coffee shop? Or can it be out in the middle of a field? I mean, well, no, you can't be in a field because that's not a church. Well, sure it is. When believers come together, wherever they at, it now becomes the church because they are the church. Make sense? Church specifically, doctrinally, biblically, theologically, is a specific called and redeemed group of people. Together, all of us in here make up the church. The, the phrase ecclesia, of course, is listed 118 times in Scripture. According to the New King James, you'll find that 115 of those, it's translated church. Again, it's our definition of church that's changed. Only three times it's translated assembly, which is really more of what church means. And the scriptures are very clear about uh, how the church or the group of um, redeemed believers are supposed to worship. They're very clear about how a church is supposed to function. It's very clear about offices in a church. It's clear about what worship is like at a church. We just basically just touched a little bit on that last week. It's very clear about what the focus of the church here, what the purpose of the church is. And you will find as we go through these in Scripture, and again, we're just going to look at one today, that um, we look at what we're doing versus what the Scripture talks about. And this seems like a club meeting. You know, we all come together and we, you know, the offering plate goes by, so we pay for our ticket and there's a show that takes place. And the message, of course, is biblical because it is a church. And the music, of course, is biblical because it is a church and we're supposed to feel good and affirmed. And, and then we go out into the world and come back in and, and kind of get built up a little bit. And, and when you read about how it exists in the New Testament, then it is not like that at all. As a matter of fact, it almost looks, I hate to use this word, um, nothing like, but it's almost nothing like what we do today, what we have done my entire life, what we have done except for pockets of revival that took place during the First and Second Great Awakening, and even during the Keswick movement, what we have done in our nation since its inception. I remember when I was a teenager, we went up to 
Boston and, you know, the 1776. And matter of fact, it may have been during 1776 that we, uh, or 1976 that we did all that. And we would go into the various churches. And this is George Washington's church. And you would go in there and they had a little two pews and walls built up around us. Nobody else can sit there. And that's where George Washington and his family, you know, Thomas Jefferson, maybe over here at this church. And I mean, it's been that way since inception. It was that way since our nation's inception. It was that way in England. It was that way during the Reformation era. It was actually that way prior to that in the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. I mean, church changed about the third century when Constantine, of course, decided for political reasons to make Christianity the state religion, and so they took pagan temples now and made them churches. They took pagan priests and now made them Christian priests, and then all of a sudden this letter to Pergamos, and we've talked all about that in the book of Revelation, all of a sudden things began to change, and we became more comfortable. They took pagan holidays and then Christianized them, and we just rolled with it. We just lived with it because... I don't know, it just seemed comfortable. It seemed like what everybody else was doing, and it all of a sudden made the responsibility of ministry to the hired holy men, the paid guys, the guys that were ordained and actually went to school for it, and the rest of us can basically just observe. Not really participate that much, but observe. And it's nothing like that in the New Testament. Before we begin, you need to understand that you're a member of his church, you are his church because he granted you that privilege. He saved you and he redeemed you and he took your body, which was controlled by the flesh, and he regenerated you during the process of, of uh, salvation. He let the Holy Spirit dwell inside of you so God actually lives in you. Stephen's great sermon was about that. God does not live in buildings built by man, like the tabernacle, lives in every single one of us and they killed him for that. And so we now have the Holy Spirit living with us, and we can gather together as a church with other churches to be able to proclaim His goodness. There was no division, no denomination. It's simply the Holy Spirit that makes you His church. And if you want to understand how salvation works, it's really simple. Holy Spirit lives in you, you're saved. Holy Spirit don't live in you, I don't care what you do, you're not saved. There's no regeneration that took place, no deposit and guarantee of a future inheritance that's inhabited you. It's not salvation, and it's quite really just that simple. It is the Holy Spirit and the changed life and the communion with God and the empowerment by Him and you just resting and abiding in Him that is the confirmation of your salvation and nothing else. Nothing else. Look what it says here in Ephesians chapter 1. In him, talking about Jesus, you also trusted. When did I trust? Well, after you heard the word of truth, after you received the gospel. When the gospel came to you, this process took place where you placed faith in the gospel, and this word of truth, which of course is the gospel of your salvation, happened and salvation took place. And what is the confirmation of your salvation, of course, is the Holy Spirit, in whom also, having believed the gospel message, you were sealed, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, sealed by him, confirmed by him, who, and we're talking about the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. It is the guarantee that I am in Christ, 
It is guaranteed by inheritance in him as a joint heir with Christ, and it's a guarantee until God redeems his purchased possession. And his purchased possession is you and me purchased by the blood of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who changes everything. And because God saved us by putting the Holy Spirit in us, and then brought us all together as individual receptacles of the Holy Spirit into a corporate setting, that now becomes what biblically is the church. Not a building, not a name, not a website, not a tax-exempt status, but that now becomes um, the church, and it is God's responsibility and not ours to build the church, because it's his church and not ours. What is our job? To make disciples. We're simply to encourage and exhort and make disciples of the people God redeems. He brings somebody to salvation through an act, election that we don't truly understand. And then that person now unites with other believers. And we who are more mature, we are who are older in the faith, our job is to make disciples of all nations, never converts. We don't make converts. God makes converts. We can witness and evangelize, but God does the action. Our job is once they become converts and the Holy Spirit lives in them, to mature them in the faith so they can reflect more of Christ. If you remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Uh, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, Jeremiah, some of the prophets of old. Okay, well, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter says. And Jesus is kind of overwhelmed with that and basically says, uh, you know, the flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven has revealed to you that I am God himself. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. And based on that faith, that statement, that, that proclamation that you just made, he says this, I also say to you that you are Peter, who means rock. And on this rock of what you just said, I, Jesus, I will build my church. You will not build my church. You will not come up with marketing schemes and turn the church into some seeker deal and all the kind of stuff we try to do to attract the crowd, to pay the bills, to, you know, all that. I will build my church and my church will be so powerful and so magnanimous, and so empowered by the Holy Spirit that the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I want you to notice the imagery here. This is not the gates of the church. It's not all of a sudden the power of darkness coming to encroach upon the church, to destroy the church. Church is hiding behind it, behind the doors, holding the doors up and then keeping the darkness out and saying the darkness will never prevail against us. That's not what's happening here. What is happening is the light of the church, the power of the gospel, Christ himself is pounding on the gates of hell, on the gates of darkness, and there's nothing that will hold back the power of the church because the power of the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit, God himself, when we learn how to let him be God and us be more than God or less than God's that we think we are. Does that make sense? So what are we supposed to do? It's really simple. We're to make disciples corporately and individually. 
We're to share our faith with others. We're to grow people in the faith. We're to parent and uh, new Christians until they become mature and they can mentor others. And this is a job that all of us do, not just the pastor or the paid clergy or some Bible teacher somewhere. This is the commission that Christ gave his disciples before he ascended. Look what it says. Jesus came about and spoke to them, saying, All authority has given to me in heaven and on earth. I am number one, top guy. I've got all authority, it says, in heaven and on earth. Because I have all authority and you belong to me, I want you now to go. To go and what? Make disciples of all nations. How do we go about doing that? Well, the salvation part I will take care of. And once somebody's saved, of course, the first thing that we command them to do is to get baptized. And so assuming salvation has taken place and we're dealing with discipleship, we're to make disciples of all nations. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But it's more than that because the whole idea is now that you're saved, you live by a different standard and a different king and a different set of rules. And so your job is to obey God. And so now I want you to teach and to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And don't worry about you doing this on your own. I am with you forever until I bring you home. That's the job of the church. That's what Christ instituted the job for the church, to help us grow in our faith. And what we do is we assume it's not our responsibility to do that. It's somebody else's. It's the pastor's job to preach us a message and help us grow in the faith. It's the youth pastor's job to take care of our teenagers one hour a week, and we let the school system deal with it the rest of the time, and we wonder why things turn out bad. It is a you know, uh, my Sunday school teacher's job to let me learn about God's Word. It's always somebody else's job to do that because pretty much we were raised and have learned to believe that our job is just to observe. Our job is to come and learn. Our job is to maybe, um, maybe, maybe we'll have devotions with our kids at night. Maybe. Maybe we'll talk about godly things with my wife. Maybe. Or maybe I'm too busy just making a living and doing the things I want to do and, and living my life and letting my wife take care of all that kind of stuff. And, and then we just come to church, hear something, clap, smile, shake hands, maybe sing, and then we go home and nothing happens. I mean, I mean, look at our nation. Look how crazy things have been. It's only getting worse. As I shared with you about a month ago, the problem, the problem in our nation, in our culture, is not the ever-encroaching darkness. It's the lack of light. It's the lack of light. So Christ determines who's in his church by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Christ is the only one responsible in building his church. And on top of that, it's Christ's responsibility to tell us how to worship him. When uh, I first understood the doctrine of election um, that Christ chooses, I I first saw it in the book of Acts chapter 13. That's when all of a sudden my blinders came off. And I started back in the book of Genesis. And I realized, you realize God chooses everything. Everything. 
I mean, the only thing God doesn't choose is how you serve him after regeneration, the whole area of sanctification. He provides everything for you, but he gets glory when you voluntarily choose to worship him and align your life with him. Everything prior to that, he chooses. He chooses the 12 um, tribes of Israel. He chooses how he wants to be worshipped. He chooses the stones that we don't even understand on the ephrod of the high priest. He tells you how many steps go up to it, the, the width and the depth and what, what the materials are made out of. He chose the disciples. He chooses everything. He doesn't leave any of that open to us. He tells us how to worship him. He tells us um, in the Psalms, tells us you know, what kind of songs we're supposed to sing to him. He tells us what happens when we come together in a corporate. He doesn't leave that up to fallible people to choose how they're going to worship him. Instead, he tells us exactly how it wants, wants it done, and then he allows us to either obey him or not obey him. I'm telling you, the only thing I see in Scripture that talks about free will is uh, how you freely choose to follow him now that you have the opportunity to do that. You have the Holy Spirit living in you, so you could choose what is right. You want to choose what is wrong. Our flesh does, and he is glorified not by making you serve him, but you choosing to serve him. Your entrance into heaven, your salvation, the consummation of the relationship he began with you in eternity past was all him, all him. So if he's making the rules, probably a pretty good idea for us to look at him because after all, he is God and we are not. So God, if this is true, then I have a question. And if I do have a question, I know that you're going to have an answer. So here's my question. You know, we've been doing church like this my whole life. I mean, we come to church as a kid. They put me in a nursery. And then that lady with the flannel graphs after that. And then I was in children's church and in pre-youth group and in youth group. And, you know, and the guy came up every Sunday and preached. We had a choir behind us. This is my upbringing. Had a choir behind us that sang songs. And some we liked and some we did. We had the Lord's Supper that we took every month, I think it was, on Sunday evening. And, you know, the faithful few would come out for Wednesday night. Um, um, prayer meeting, and then we had boy, we had softball and flag football games at the church, and a church basketball league, and it was kind of a cool place to go to. Buildings kept getting bigger, and we had deacons, and and you know, that pastor left, and another pastor came in, and I didn't like him as good as the last guy. I'm going to go to another church. I mean, you've been there, always that way. And okay, I mean, is that the way it's supposed to be? I mean, is that is that what Christ had? So I have a question. Here's my question, Lord. If Christ redeems his church and then commands us to meet together in community as the called out ones to worship him, does he allow us to do it any way we want? I mean, is he satisfied with the trinkets and toys that we bring? Or he was never that way in the Old Testament, you know? So is he satisfied that way? Or does he give us guidelines about what our time together is supposed to look like? And the answer is absolutely. Sure does but it looks nothing like church today. And it makes us feel really uncomfortable. And the reason why is the fact that most of us are content with coming to church rather than being the church. Huge distinction here. Coming to church 
or being the church. If I come to church, it's comfortable. I come whenever I want. I come on time. I come late. It doesn't really matter because it's all about me. I sing if I want. I don't sing if I want. I mean, it's, it's all about me. If the preacher preaches a message I like, I say so. If he doesn't, I don't. If I get a bunch of those in a row that I don't like, I'll go to another church. I, I pay with my tithe, like somehow it's my money. I pay for the ability to be able to have a say in everything, and this is the way it goes, and you know, just always that way. How many churches have you been part of in your entire life? Well, I've been in the same city for 60 years, and I've been to seven ter- churches. Why? Well, I don't know. I just got tired of that one. This guy irritated me, and I went from here to here to here to here, got a divorce, and they wouldn't let me be a deacon in this church, so now they made me one over here, and it's just always that way, always that way. Why? So if it's true that God has some guidelines and he wants us not to be passive, but actually active, what does that look like compared to what we do? Now, let me say this the right way. When I share this with you, it may make you feel uncomfortable, but it's not your fault, okay? This is not your fault. This is not preaching down to you. I mean, I'm discovering this myself. This is not your fault. We have been trained and conditioned by generations of church liturgical leaders that this is the way it's supposed to be. When you, as a young man, decide that Josiah decides he wants to be a preacher, the first thing that's required him, you've got to go to seminary. Why do I have to go to seminary? We got to go to seminary. I can't go to Bible college. Got to go to seminary. And you're going to have to get a, a master's degree in some sort of religious persuasion taught by people that may or may not even know Jesus. And because you have to have that paper, you have that certificate. You got to get ordained, have to be ordained because there's ministers and ordained ministers. And ordained ministers are the only ones that really count. Well, who ordains you? Well, some church, maybe the church that you're going to, and they ordain you and say that we're now bestowing upon you ecclesiastical authority to go out and marry and bury and preach the gospel and share the gospel. Where where did you get that from? What passage of scripture ever talks about ordination? Um, Oh, oh, it's Acts chapter 13. I remember when Paul and Barnabas were getting ready to go and, and with the church, they called the elders together and they prayed and fasted and then they laid hands upon them and sent them out. That was ordination. Have you read that passage recently? I mean, those people had nothing to do with sending out Paul and Barnabas. It was the Holy Spirit who spoke in the midst and says, here's what I want you to do. Send those guys out. If you really look at the Greek construction of those words, they didn't send them out. They let them go. They affirmed something God was already going to do with or without their approval. That's another message for another day. As a matter of fact, I preached that about that whole concept when we went through the book of Acts 10 years ago. But why all the rules? Why do we do that? Well, because you have to have a job. I mean, if you're going to be a pastor, then some entity is going to have to hire you. And if you have to hire you, then as the pastor, you're going to have to go through a hiring process. You're going to have to take a drug test, believe it or not. You know, take a drug test. They're going to look at your background. They're going to have performance reviews and all that kind of stuff. And because you're just part of the system. That's part of the, the entity, the, the profit and loss statement in order to keep the program running. And it's always been that way. I mean, it's been that way, I don't know, 1,700 years? Well, are you saying that for 1,700 years we've gotten it wrong? No. What I'm saying is I want you to see what the Bible says about it, and you make a comparison, and you tell me, 
You tell me if you see the difference here. And we're just going to look at one aspect of it. So let's just look at church today. Church has to have a building. Have to have a building. You know, you have massive amount of real estate just in Gaston County. You've got a church on every street corner, and it's used several hours a week. You build this multi-million dollar building. You have large worship services and gathering in there, maybe 100, 200,000 people, 1,500, 3,000. It doesn't really matter. You've got this huge stadium. You've got a small staff that stays all during the week, works there 40 hours to make sure the ties are recorded right and you know the buildings are upkept. And maybe you have a meeting on Wednesday or maybe some mops group uses the building for a couple hours on Thursday. But pretty much you have to have a building that is designed for something. It's like an educational facility, Sunday school classrooms and all that kind of stuff that is really empty most of the time. And why do we have to do it that way? Well, because our job is to disciple young believers and we ain't going to do it. I mean, we're not opening up our homes to do that. We're not taking three or four of our friends and bringing them into our homes and do that because that has to be done at a building and a Sunday school class by just somebody that we've given authority to do that or they feel comfortable doing that. And Imagine what a tremendous waste of money that is for a hurting world out there. But we do it. We do it. And then when you come into church, it's always like this. Always. It is an educational setting where there's an elevated stage where the performers are, where the hired holy people are. We all come and we sit in a setting like you would in a college classroom where I'm not expected to interact with the teacher. I'm not expected to ask questions or to maybe share something that happened with me. Instead, my job is just to receive, to receive academically. I sing a song. I have an option to do that or not. A guy comes up and he preaches. I can take notes or not. I can bring my textbook or not. It doesn't really matter. There's no pressure on me. But the whole thing is set up so that we don't communicate with each other. Instead, we look at the back of someone's head as all of us are looking forward to the elevated man, to the, to the PowerPoint or, or the TV monitors or something of that nature. Is that not true? Look at this building. Look at our building, the barn, set up exactly the same way because that's all we know. And then we have this split between the clergy and the laity. The clergy and the laity. The clergy, what is it, Vodi Bakum that says you have to have your papers, your ordination papers to do anything. The clergy is allowed to do some things, and the laity is not. The clergy does the preaching and the teaching. The clergy in a more formal church, they're the ones that actually hold the elements of uh, you know, the Lord's Supper and stuff of that nature. And, you know, they're the they're the hired guys, they're the vocational guys. And since we're paying those guys to do it, we don't need to do it. When we first started this church, the idea was that, you know, I was working full-time, you guys were working full-time, we're just starting, fledging together, and then all of a sudden, you know, it was a joint shared ministry, but we don't like joint shared ministries. What we like is you do it, and we'll kind of come along when we have time, but, but that's the clergy's job. And the clergy, of course, then takes authority over that. They take power over that. They set rules for that, like they did all during the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages. Still exists today. Music and worship. You know, we always have music, and the better the music, the uh, more we think we worship. But many times today, we confuse worship and music. We've got the pulpit, the elevated pulpit. They have theirs on the side. Some churches have them elevated. Where that's where it comes. That's where the man of God speaks the word. And our job is to take in what he says and do what? 
I, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm writing things down in my notes and, you know, maybe I'll go back and look at it. Maybe I won't. And next week I'll come and I'll hear something else and I'm learning and, and no, but, but, and discipleship takes place, I guess, when we're looking at the pastor preach. Well, what about the discipleship for each of us? What, what are we supposed to be doing? Nothing. I have a job. I have a family. I've, I got responsibilities to do. And, and it's always been that way. But the whole idea of preaching, most, most churches are preaching centristic. In other words, the church is not defined by their worship or the way God is moved. The church is defined by their pastor. Uh, here's so-and-so pastor is a dynamic speaker, wrote seven books, and you know, he's been in our church for 14 years, and you know, here he is, and you can look and listen to all his messages and all that kind of stuff. And I find it amazing that when you go on a lot of churches, that uh, if you look at their sermons for sun- the Sunday before, most of them, not all of them, but most of them begin with him and end with him. You have a little bit of music before and a little bit of music after, and there's no real worship that takes place. That, or if it does, it's not good enough to, to record. Now, what about this? What about this priesthood of all believers thing? You ever heard that before? Key doctrine from the Reformation. It's called the priesthood of all believers. And what it basically means is this. You have direct access to God. You do. You don't have to go through me or a pope or a Mary or a dead saint or anything like that to have someone atone for your sins. You have direct access to God. It was the key doctrine of the Reformation that had them break from the control of there's only one priest and, you know, and all that with the, with the Catholic Church. Uh, we all agree in our mind. We all affirm the priesthood of the believers. It means we have direct access to God and don't have to go through an intermediary. We don't have to go through a priest, a pope, Mary, or someone else. If you have a prayer request, you can sit in your car, you can make that prayer request to God, and he hears you and he will grant that or not. You have a a sin that needs to be confessed. You don't have to come to me or some ordained guy over here in a little closet and confess your sins to them and let them tell you what you have to do to receive atonements you know, write a check for 500 bucks or say 150 Hail Marys. Well, you're not doing this stuff. You have direct access to God. So there's not a priest that you have to go to and have him on your behalf try to appease God with offerings and stuff of that nature. Oh, listen, here's my friend Bob, and Bob's a really terrible guy, and so would you please take care of Bob and act as an intermediary? You don't have to do that anymore. You have direct access. And we know it's true in our mind, but we seldom live like it is, especially in church. Especially in church. And that's the one place that we should the most. Long description here. So as a priesthood of all believers is a doctrine that declares that the privilege and freedom of all believing Christians is to stand before God in personal communion through Christ directly from Christ, receiving forgiveness without the necessary recourse of human intermediaries. By the way, do you agree with that? Okay. As priest, really, I'm a priest? Yeah, we're going to look at 1 Peter 2 in just a second. As a priest, believers directly offer sacrifices and praise and thanksgiving to God and minister to the needs of others. That's what priests do. Ordained pastors are no different than anybody else except in function. 
You know, I'm a pastor and a teacher, and that's my gift. That may not be your primary gift, but I'm a priest, and so are you. I'm not more spiritual than you are. I'm not more, uh, I'm not, God doesn't hear my prayers better than they hear yours. There's nothing special about any pastor, even though some of them want you to think that and have a turned around collar and the, you know, the Vespers and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't work that way. You, we've been conditioned not to think that way, but you are just as much a priest as anybody else. So the question is, do you believe that is true? Do you believe that you're a priest unto God? And if you are, if you do believe that, here's a verse that will confirm that for you. Listen very carefully what it says. Very familiar verse. But you, not the pastor, not the congregation, but you personally are a chosen generation. Implied, you are a royal priesthood. That's not just for me or some other John MacArthur or some other pastor out there. It's for you. You are a chosen generation. You're a member of that. You're a royal priesthood. Together, we're a holy nation. We're his own special people. So much so that he tells us that we are joint heirs with Christ. Why in the world would God make every one of us priest unto him? Changing the whole concept from the Jewish religious economy. That you... You, not just the pastor, but you may proclaim the praises of him who called you. What God has done for me, I'm I'm ordained to call and proclaim those praises. That when he brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, you're a priest with a mandate to share him. So where where do we go about sharing him? Do do I believe this is true? Am I a priest under God? And if so, how would that change my freedom to be able to hear from God and minister to others in the power of the Holy Spirit? I mean, it's two questions here, whether you do hear from God or whether you believe it's possible for you to hear from God. If If you haven't heard from God, but you believe it's possible to hear from Him, does that mean that you always have to hear God speak to you through somebody else? Do a just saith the Lord kind of deal in an Old Testament motif? Or can you yourself actually hear from God? Can he give you a word of wisdom or a word of understanding or or the right words to share to help somebody? And if it's possible, just possible, and even expected for you to be able to hear from God, what are the ramifications of that? And how would that change Sunday morning? Well, I just want to hear from the man of God. Well, who's the man of God? Well, the guy that's up in the pulpit. Well, who are you? Well, we're just people that hear from the man of God. Well, you're not a man of God? You're not a priest also? Holy Spirit doesn't live in you? Or does he? And if he does live in you, what, do you have him in a box somewhere? No, I just when you come to church, it's not my job to share anything. It's his job to share everything. My job is just to kind of, what, take it in and then go out there in the world and be a light? Well, you know, that ain't happening. I mean, look at our world today. Are we missing it somehow? And we'll go through this really quick, um, cheery four or five verses, just to introduce this topic to you, and then we're going to close, um, and we will expand this later on. It's two words, two words. It'll absolutely change your life. And those words are one another. One 
another. I never noticed this until the last couple of weeks. It'll change the way you view worship and change the way you view church. And this is the rules or the mandate or the blueprint that God lays out for us how church should be. Uh, the word, the phrase one another is included almost 60 times in scripture. We're just going to look at a few of these. But before we do, I want you to know that our church services today are designed for worship, hearing a sermon, and in some cases evangelism. A lot of pastors will give a gospel call at the end of uh you know, the worship services, which is great, but pretty much that's what we do. We come together for worship music. We hear a message, hopefully to affirm us and build us up. Maybe there's a gospel presentation, and then we go home. That's pretty much the way church is today. And this would be a good church. Biblically speaking, the first century church had a different design. It was designed for mutual edification. And that means the act of, the word edification means the act of building up or bringing something closer to fullness or completion to strengthen, encourage, or make home, make whole. It's like, it's like discipleship. But it wasn't pulpit down. It was mutual edification. It was, means I encourage and edify Scott. And Scott turns around and encourages and edifies somebody else. And we do it all in the same setting. No, 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 I, I don't want to say anything. I don't, I don't want to encourage anybody. I just want to take it all in. Why? Because I've been told since I was day this big, day one, that I don't speak in church. I don't say anything in church. I, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And, 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 and the other, the holy man, he's going to handle all that kind of stuff. Look at the way it's set up. It's not set up for anybody to say anything until we start looking in Scripture about these one another's. I'm going to go through this just quickly. And I just want you to look at the word one another. And I want you to look at the responsibility God lays out for everyone in the church, not just the pastor. Everyone who is a priest unto him. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. How is it then, brethren? Oh, so we're talking to uh, believers here. Whenever you come together, in the home, in the marketplace, in a Tuesday night Bible study, at a youth group, at kids club on Sunday morning, whenever you come together, each of you, Really? Each, not just the clergy, not just the pastor or the worship leader, each of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, has an interpretation. And why are we doing all this? So there's edification that takes place. Each of you does that. And if you want to, again, paraphrase that, it means that all things be done, this edification, for the building up of the body of Christ into completion and maturity. That's discipleship. And it looks like this process involves more than just the pastor. Josiah stood up today, and he shared with you an experience in his life. He was going through a really tough time and kind of dark, and you know, God wasn't, I couldn't really connect with God. I didn't know what to do. I really hadn't turned to God on this. Correct me if I'm saying any of this wrong. But uh, you know, I asked him to show me something, and he gave me this verse, and here's the verse, and boom, the God has a plan for you. All of a sudden, I realized, yeah, he does have a plan for me. I'm going through tough times right now, but he's sovereign and all of that. He has a plan for me, same plan for me, and then he turned it right around, same plan for me, has plan for you. So if you're going through something like that, and man, that was a word of edification. That was, a, that was something God has shown with you. I was greatly encouraged by that, were you not? But you can only do that in here. If I tell you to, and you can come up and stand up here, 
You can't ever do it from where you're sitting. Can't ever do it in a small Bible study because you're not expected to, and you've been told since you were this big to be quiet because someone else is speaking. We've been conditioned that way. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's just the way the system works. And we find out biblically it may not be that way. Hebrews 10. Oh, this is the verse of telling people they ought to come to church. Now you're missing the point of this. And let us consider who? Each other. One another. We come to church. I need to be mindful, not of just what I'm getting from the pulpit. I need to be mindful of all those other people there. And what am I, what am I mindful of them about? What am I supposed to do for them? Well, in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Okay, well, that's what this verse means. No, that's just saying when we come together, be mindful of other people, and you need to be there so you can actually do that and exhort one another. What, just the pastor? No, you exhort one another so much the more as you see that day approaching. So in church, there's like a mutual edification here, a mutual encouragement to each other. Absolutely. This is more than a statement about forsaking church. It's a command for each other to exhort each other and build them up and encourage them. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Well, God has given us this fivefold ministry, and therefore this fivefold ministry, those are the only people supposed to function in church. Who told you that? I mean, really, who told you that? Probably one of these pastor-teacher guys that want to make sure that everybody, you know, the, you know, the cattle stays where it's supposed to be. Look what it says here. And he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets. Oh, we don't deal with those people anymore. Really? Some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. Why did God equip the church with all of these? For the equipping of the saints, or the holy called out ones, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, the edifying of each other. Note, the fivefold ministry listed here is to equip the church for edifying each other. And we think that's limited to just this God, because it's always been that way, but it's not. You are also a priest. We'll continue. Verse 13 and 14. Till we, this is the reason why we're doing this, the church, the body of Christ, you and me, all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of Man, to a perfect man, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Next week or the week after, I'm going to just preaching on the fullness of Christ. If this is a body, and every one of us are part of that body, and if one of us is missing, the body somehow is handicapped, and if every one of us has an experience with Christ more than mine, different than mine, and if Carol, for example, and Tammy, for, for example, refuse to share what Christ is doing in their life, then how can we as the body of Christ, ever experience the fullness of Christ when the vast majority of us never share anything at all? Doesn't make any sense, does it? The most you can get is what I've experienced. And, there's a, and I'm not the only priest in here. Every one of you, according to what God says, is also a priest. We'll continue. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. What should we do? But we, implied, speak the truth in love. Was that just the pastor? No, look at the context here. You speak the truth in love. 
so we may grow up in all things unto him who is the head of Christ, from the whole body, the church, and all its members, joined and knitted together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Every person in the body does its share. And why are we doing that? Watch this construction of words. Because that causes growth of the body for the edifying of the body itself in love. The body grows and the body edifies itself in love. That's not all done by the pastor. It's not all done by the hired holy guy. It's not all done based on the way church has always been in my entire life. It's done by us, all of us, freely edifying each other in love, encouraging each other. I can help you with the gifts that I have. Uh, if you're in a hospital and you're on a respirator and you need someone to come and sit with you, Susan does that. That's, that's Susan's ministry. If I'm the only one that exercises their spiritual gifts, man, if you're in a hospital, you're out of luck. It doesn't work that way. The fact is, all of us are part of the body, and the body itself edifies itself. This can't be done if it's just the paid professional staff that does all the ministering. There has to be a, a resurgence of us doing this together. I will deal with these questions later because we are out of time. But I do want to um, just close by going through these passages and show you biblically, just as a taste, what a church service looks like in the New Testament. We know this passage already. I was a brethren, whenever you come together, including Sunday morning right now, each of you, not just me, but each of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, interpretation, that all things be done for edification. Every single one of us. Tuesday night Bible study, has God done anything in your life? Most people say nothing. And it's not your fault. It's just, it's not my job to speak. I feel uncomfortable speaking. It's your job to speak. And I want people to think I'm taking over. I don't want people to think bad of me for doing it. I got that. Anybody want to share anything at the end of a worship service? Nothing. And I know that. I mean, it's, it's not that God's not doing anything in your life. It's just that we don't think we're supposed to do that. But that's how the early church functioned. Colossians 3. Let the word of God dwell in you, you, personal, richly, in all wisdom. And since you have all this wisdom, you implied teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Wow. Find the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5. You implied speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. It's all through the Scripture. And in Hebrews we find out, and I'll close with this, in the book of Hebrews we find out that it's your ability and freedom and desire to minister to one another that keeps each other, it keeps us from falling into sin, from struggling with apostasy, from being shipwrecked in our faith. It's not, it can't just be done from the pulpit. It has to be done from the people who know those people best. And you know your family and your friends better than I do. But we're conditioned to be quiet. Look what it says in Hebrews here. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you, talking about a believers here, of an, of an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. 
any of you that is going to drift away into apostasy. So what's the antidote? What keeps someone from doing that? A pastor visit? No. Exhort one another daily. Encourage one another all the time. Speak to one another when you see something like that happening. And do it while we still have time, while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. Somebody that you know is uh, you know, drifting away in an immoral relationship with a young woman or young man or, or is, is involved in sin and just comes to church and you know about it and the pastor doesn't know about it. We kind of keep that sin hidden and everything. And it's your job. When you tell them, I mean, you could save them from a world of hurt. And this is what happens, should happen on the Lord's day. Um, but it continues. Hebrews 10. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We've already talked about that. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What should church be like? We have songs, praise. We have a time of exhortation. There's a time where you have a psalm or a hymn or you know a Bible verse or something God's really done in you. And, and it's, it's, maybe there's no time limit. Maybe we just spend some time fellowshipping and praising to God. And if he shows up in a powerful way, who wants to leave and go home? This should also take place on the Lord's Day, but it never does because we've, we've structured it to keep that from happening. So that was my conclusion. We're going to be looking at church and worship and ministry and evangelism and some of the other things that we kind of take for granted from the biblical perspective. And then we're going to look at where we are as people, as individuals, as a congregation, and I hope make some changes to align our life to be more like him. Because I believe that church, we as believers, uh, should always be growing. And I think the only thing that keeps us from growing is when we put like a roadblock or something to stymie our growth. And I would sure hate to think that um, it was maybe church that's doing that. Amen? All right, let me pray.